Father in heaven, it is a privilege that we have Bibles that we can open, that we can read words that are of eternal worth and value in a world that is lost in lies. We have the truth. God, give us a greater appreciation for your word and how it applies to our lives right here and right now. And Lord, I ask for your enablement as I preach. I pray that you would fill me. I pray that you would use me. I pray that you would grant me the ability to speak truth and wrap my arms around your people and have a sensitivity to your leading through this passage to say what you want me to say in the way you want me to say it. Lord, I ask that you would fine-tune this message for each soul that is here. For those who are walking away from you, may you draw them back. For those who do not know you, may today be the day of salvation. May you strengthen marriages and strengthen homes and families. And Father, we just ask for your hand of favor and blessing and enablement. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's been said, chivalry is dead. Well, it's the deterioration of masculine sensitivity, maybe men not acting as gentlemanly as they once did or should. Chivalry, though, finds its origin in the Middle Ages. It was a code of conduct associated with medieval institution of knighthood. It required knights to be men who were loyal and generous, honest and obedient, respecters of women and protectors of the weak and God-fearing individuals. Chivalry today has morphed into maybe more the actions that become a gentleman. Giving up your seat for someone, opening a car door, pulling out a chair, paying for a meal, maybe walking closest to traffic, maybe not walking 10 feet in front of your wife. Anybody struggle with that? I mean, she walks along, I'm like, man, I'm always way ahead of her. Maybe it's offering your coat on a chilly day or holding something for her, sending her flowers. Someone has said, though, Being male is a matter of birth. Being a man is a matter of age. But being a gentleman is a matter of choice. And today on Mother's Day, it's a good reminder for us men how to act like gentlemen, to be chivalrous, to know how to treat a lady for the glory of God. And we're going to learn from some examples today, both good examples as well as bad examples. And they're found in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to take it and and turn to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to meet a woman named Hannah. We're going to meet two men, one named Elkanah and Eli. Hannah is a tortured soul. She is barren, unable to have babies. And she's living in a polygamous marriage. And her counterpart is very fertile and flauntingly so. And Hannah cries out to God for a son, promising to dedicate him back to the Lord for the rest of his life. And God will answer her prayer. The two men, Elkanah, one being her husband, Eli is the high priest. Both of these men in need of serious lessons in chivalry and sensitivity training. But I want you to know this message on Mother's Day is for everyone. It is for every and any man who is here, no matter your age. Because God wants us to understand how to treat women. Whether that's your wife or your mom or your sister or your grandmother. It's also a message for every woman here. Because you need to know how to encourage the men in your life and how to pray for the men in your life as well. First Samuel chapter 1, read along as I read the first couple verses. 
Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophin, from the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Toha, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. I will say it again. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other Peninnah, and Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. First lesson in chivalry, listen up, don't compare her to other women. And I want to put in parentheses behind it, to your own peril. You don't compare her to other women. Bad move, buddy, you got two wives. Now the obvious assumption is clear, the first wife couldn't have kids. So he marries another woman who can have kids. Talk about giving Hannah an inferiority complex. Talk about devaluing her worth in the eyes of everybody. Talk about making her feel like a failure. Men, do not do this with any woman in your life, and especially your wife. You you do not devalue her worth in the eyes of others and give her this complex and make her feel like a failure. Be very careful of that. Now, you may say, well, what's going on with polygamy? The thing I love about God's Word is He never hides the sin or the stains or the spots of humanity. He lets us see it so that we learn from it. Polygamy is addressed in Scripture, but it is never, ever condoned. And there is instructions in Scripture dealing with polygamy concerning the inheritance of children, those families, but every example of polygamy in the Bible is disastrous. It's filled with animosity and chaos and jealousy. Just ask Jacob's wives, all four of them. Rachel and Leah and Zilpah and Bilhah in Genesis 29. God's design has always been one man, one woman, for life, unapologetically. He knows what it makes, takes to make a family work. One man, one woman, for life. Perfect compliments to each other, physically and emotionally and spiritually. It's all part of God's design. One man, one woman, for life. Now, he makes this bad move. He's got two wives. Listen up, men. He should have waited on God. He should have trusted in God. Does he not realize that later on in life, God will open up her womb and she will have six kids total? Our impatience and our lack of trust as men will get us in trouble every time. When you and I as men start taking matters into our own hands, that's when we mess everything up. And I want you to understand something. Our impatience and lack of trust will not only hurt us, it will severely hurt our loved ones. Be careful of a lack of trust and be careful of a lack of patience in your life. Learn to be more sensitive. No woman in her right mind wants to share her husband with another woman. No woman in her right mind wants to share her home with another woman. Now, unfortunately, some wives feel this way about their husbands. I have received hundreds of replies to my ad for a husband. They all say the same thing. Take mine. You don't want women feeling that way about you, okay? Now, you may say, well, I don't have two wives, but do you do anything in your life to make her feel like a second-class citizen? Be careful not to look at other women. Be careful how you talk about other women. Be careful not to compare her to other women. Oh, my mom's cooking was so much better. You don't go there. 
Oh, you know, and then you start talking about how she laughs or how she dresses, or then you mention her weight. Woo! Here, I got something for you. A recent study has found that women who carry a little extra weight live longer than do the men who mention it. (laughs) Just remember that. Be very careful, guys. Women are sensitive about their age, about their weight, about their clothes, about their hair, about children. We celebrate motherhood today, but there are a lot of ladies who cannot have kids. You know, we need to be sensitive to that, and we need to be careful with that as well. We, we need to build this mom up, build this wife up, build that daughter up, let them know the difference they're making, and encourage them as the person that God has made them to be, and not compare them to other people. So the first lesson in chivalry, don't compare her to another woman. Second lesson in chivalry, don't ignore the pressures that she's facing. And those women in our lives are really facing pressures. And sometimes us guys are just in left field. We don't get the pressures that they're under. Look at verse 4. The day came when Elkanah, the husband, he's sacrificing. You know, he's got some extra food and he's given portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he'd give this double portion of food. For he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival, that's Peninnah, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. She's making fun of her. Happened year after year. As often as they went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. All of a sudden, you have this husband who thinks favoritism is going to help the whole situation. No, that's disastrous. It's going to make the situation even worse. Do not show favoritism in your home. Don't show favoritism over one kid to another kid. All you got to do is ask Rebecca and Isaac how that worked with Jacob and Esau. You got Isaac in Genesis 25 who loves Esau and Rebecca loving Jacob. That's just not healthy. Okay, and Rebecca would never see her son Jacob again because of this favoritism and what it would do in the home. Just ask Joseph and his brothers about that multicolored coat and how that went over. Yeah, just ask them. You know, Genesis 37, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons, made him that very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. They hated Joseph, couldn't speak to him on friendly terms. Favoritism never helps in a family. And by the way, when you give stuff, you you have Hannah getting this double portion of food from her husband, more food than Peninnah. Stuff, listen carefully, lots of stuff can't replace loss of love. Lots of stuff and stuff and stuff will never replace loss of love. You got this guy, he's left field, trying to make it up to his wife with more food. Here's an extra steak, honey. Sorry you can't have a kid. What? You know, here's a bigger leg of lamb. Hope that solves everything. Maybe for you guys that'll help, okay? But not for her. All right? Understand. He, he's totally missing it. She can't eat anyway. First Samuel 1 Samuel 1.7 says she's weeping and unable to eat. She's so upset. Stuff can never replace relationship. Maybe what she really needs is your time. Maybe what she really desires is your affection. I didn't say sex. I said your affection. Maybe what would really make a difference is a listening ear and not more stuff. He's totally missing all the emotional turmoil that's going on in her life. Look at verse 6. She's got this rival, Peninnah, provoking her bitterly, irritating her, and she's a rival, meaning they're adversaries, they're opponents, they're competitors. You've got two women 
married to the same man. This is a never-ending storm of contention in this house that's not going to go away. And two women who can't get along will throw a whole household out of whack. A mom and a daughter not getting along, that'll throw everything out of whack. Two women who can't get along will disrupt an entire workplace. Those two women can't get along. Two women who can't get along will negatively affect an entire church. Paul writes about that in Philippians 4.2. I urge Judea and I urge Syntyche. He urges them with apostolic authority. Live in harmony in the Lord. Make it work. Make it work now is what the apostle says. Indeed, true comrade, I ask that you help these women who've shared my struggle in the case, in the cause of the gospel. Ladies, you need to get your act together. And men, you need to help them get their act together. Peninnah, though, is the provoker. It says here she provokes her bitterly and irritates her. The word provoke literally means to thunder against. So you have this one woman flying around who's a thundercloud, is what she is. And she just rains and lightnings and pours down on Hannah and makes her life miserable, steals her joy. And you may say, well, what has she said? What is she saying? What is she doing? We're not told exactly, but, but, but you can understand. Peninnah has children. Hannah doesn't have children. Maybe it's like, I've given our husband children. Not you. <laughs> uh, the Lord has blessed me. Not you. Oh, oh, and by the way, my children will carry on the family name and inherit everything. Not you. Or maybe she's a little more subtle in her nastiness. Oh, by the way, Hannah, I'm expecting again. Oh, and I'm expecting again. Oh, and I'm expecting again. And all of a sudden, her children become these trophies in her eyes. And she's up 2-0, and then 3-0, and then 5-0. And all in the midst of this, Hannah sees all these children all over the house, none of which are hers. And Hannah's picking up after these children, none of which are hers. And Hannah's helping feed these children, none of which are hers. Some women can be so mean and so cruel and so nasty. Some of you have seen it and some of you have heard it. The gossip and the slander and the nastiness. Make sure that is not you. Keep your mouth shut. She's a continual thorn in the side of Hannah, verse 7, year after year, provoking, weeping, not eating, even as they go up to the house of the Lord. So this time of celebration, going to church, becomes a time of consternation, and it takes an emotional toll. You're, You're going to church, and you see that woman, and she's in your face, and she's saying nasty things, and it takes your joy away of even worship. So wrong. But of course, then you have a husband who's just trying to give you more steak. Oh, that helps. He's, he's just out there. He just doesn't get it. He, he's missing the pressures and the position that she's in. He, he's missing the pressure. Just listen up, guys. Don't miss the pressure of your wife. The pressure she faces in the home of the meals and the housework and the children Don't miss the financial pressure she feels. Don't miss the the, the pressure she's feeling physically. Don't miss the pressure she's feeling with the children. Don't distance yourself from that and throw something at her like that. That that shall soothe it. Enter into those pressures. Help her with those pressures. Support her and encourage her and pray for her. That's what this man should have done. Now, it's It's interesting third lesson in chivalry is this. Don't tell her to get over it. 
that will not go over well, okay? You'd say, well, what's Elkanah going to do? Maybe maybe he's going to offer to pray with Hannah. Maybe he's going to sit both of these ladies down and say, let's work through this together. I'm going to intercede or, 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 or we're going to seek God together and we're going we're to learn how to deal with this. None of the above. Look what he says. Look, look what he says in verse 8. Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? In other words, why, why are you crying again? Why are you crying? What's wrong? What, why are you crying? You know, what, what do you, why won't you eat? Why is your heart sad? What's your problem? That's what he's saying. What's your problem, honey? Duh. You've rejected me as a wife, and you've got favoritism in the home, and my thundering rival is railing against me. But here's the kicker. Am I not better to you than ten sons? This is what he's saying. You don't need kids. You've been blessed with me, babe. <laughs> That's his solution to the problem. Look, honey, you got me. You don't need anything else. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, us guys would never do anything like that. Now, the picture that comes to mind of Hannah is this one. I, I, just, I just picture her sticking her tongue out behind her husband. And I wouldn't blame her for doing that, okay? He's not helping the situation. You know what he's doing? He's making his wife look like she's the one with the problem. He's making his wife look like she is the problem. And he's diverting it and turning it back on her. Guys, we're good at that. We turn it around and divert it back on the kids, and we turn it around and divert it back on our wives, and we make them feel guilty, and we make it look like it's their fault, and we make it look like it's all about us. Oh, poor woe is me. It's not about us. And we get selfishness in the way of supporting our wife when it is not about us. It's about the pressures they're facing and the feelings they're going through and the support they need from us. So stop downplaying her emotions. God has made her a beautiful emotional creature and start trying to understand her. As a matter of fact, 1 Peter 3, 7 has some good advice. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. He says, listen, guys, you need to take some time with her. You need to understand her. That means you need to listen to her. That means you need to empathize with her. You need to understand she's weaker. What does that mean? She's not one of the guys. Stop treating her like she's one of the guys. She's not one of the guys. She is, she's an emotional creature, and that is how God has created her. She's different physically. She's different emotionally, and that is good. And that's how God's made her. So exercise some of the fruit of the Spirit here and love her and be patient and be kind and be gentle. And it says here, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. You're not better than her. And if you guys think you are, you're wrong. She is a fellow heir, equal child of God as you, with different roles and responsibilities within the marriage. And this is what he says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. God makes it real clear. If you gentlemen don't get this down, and you don't start treating your wife like you're supposed to treat her, you can pray till you're blue in the face, I won't listen to a thing you say. 
God says, until your relationship is right horizontally with your wife, it will never be right vertically with your God. That's what he says. He says, you better make sure your relationship with your wife is right. Because until it's right, I will not listen to a thing you pray about. So you've been praying about that job? God says, nope, it's out of the question. Been praying about your health? Nope, it's out of the question. Been praying about your finances? Nope, it's out of the question. God says, I don't hear you because you don't know how to treat your wife. Start treating your wife the way God wants you to treat her. And then God says, then we'll talk. Don't compare her to another woman. Don't ignore the pressure she's facing. Don't tell her to get over it. Fourth lesson, don't jump to conclusions. Don't falsely accuse. Don't misjudge her motives or her actions. And what we have here is we jump ahead in the passage and Hannah is at the tabernacle and she's crying out to God in the depths of her soul, asking God for a child, for a son. And she's totally misjudged, not by her husband this time, but by the high priest, Eli, in the nation of Israel. We see verse 10, she's greatly distressed and prays to the Lord and she weeps bitterly and she makes this vow that if God will look upon her affliction and remember her then give her a son, then she'll give him back all the day of his, of his life and a razor will never come on his head. That he'll be a Nazarite for the rest of his life, dedicated to the service of God. Verse 10, and she continues to pray before the Lord and Eli, that's the high priest, he's watching her mouth. Hannah is speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, her voice was not heard. So she's mouthing her prayers without any, any sound coming out. And so Eli, the super spiritual man in Israel, says, you're drunk. How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away the wine from you. Hannah says, no, my Lord, I'm a woman of pressed in the spirit. I haven't drunk neither wine or strong drink. I'm pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman. I've spoken now until, until now out of the great concern and provocation. See, so if this beautiful, wonderful woman of God, who, by the way, you never see her fight the other woman in the house. She takes it to God in prayer. And that's what you should do when you're at odds with somebody else. Don't fight them. Go to God in prayer. And she's silently mouthing words of God in prayer. And you have Eli, the Billy Graham of the nation, so to speak. He's the high priest of the nation. He's the spiritual judge of the land. He's the most important religious man in the country. And what does he say? You're drunk. That'd be like you walking in the church this morning and Pastor Scott going up to you and saying, you're drunk. Wouldn't that just encourage you greatly to come back? That's what's going on here. I want you to understand that. So he has this unfounded false accusation that couldn't be farther from the truth. Talk about spiritual insensitivity, jumping to conclusions about people. Be careful you do not jump to conclusions about people. We would hurt a whole lot less people if we would just take the time to privately ask them a question. We would hurt a whole lot less of people if we just simply kept our big mouth shut. And we would look a whole lot less like a fool if we simply asked private questions and if we learned to keep our mouth shut. Some of you have jumped to conclusions about a neighbor of yours. Shame on you. And you're caught up in the gossip and the slander with the other neighbors. Have you gone to that neighbor and asked them? Then keep your mouth shut. Some of you are caught up with false accusations at work. You're assuming something about somebody at work that you have no business assuming because you're totally wrong. But you think you're right. Have you gone to that person and talked to them about it? 
Keep your mouth shut. Don't jump to conclusions about your own kids. Don't jump to conclusions about your spouse. Get the facts. Go privately. Talk. This accusation, you're drunk. You're a mumbling drunk. You're, pouring, you're, you're, you're not pouring your heart out in prayer. You're, you're pouring yourself too many drinks. So she's got the most important man in her life, her husband, who is insensitive and selfish. And she's got the most important spiritual man in the nation not understanding her and accusing her of being drunk. I want you to understand what happens to women when they're surrounded by an insensitive man who won't seek to understand them. It drives them to a very dark corner and they feel very alone in this world. And some of you are married to very lonely women because you have not encouraged your relationship with your wife. And it's time to take her by the hand and lead her out of that lonely, dark corner and be the man that God has called you to be. To be sensitive and to be caring and to be kind and to be sensitive and to be gentle. And did I say be sensitive? And to listen to her understand the importance of this. And she explains herself in verse, in, in verse uh, 15 and 16, I'm oppressed in spirit. I've poured out my soul, you know, and, and, and I want you to understand she's a godly woman. Godly women can be completely misunderstood and godly women can be completely misjudged. Be careful not to jump to conclusions. And in somewhat of an apology in verse 17, uh, uh, Eli basically says, go in peace, you know, Lord's blessing on you, and, and may you have your request, which she will in time. There's a fifth lesson in chivalry, and now we have a positive illustration. Instead of all the don't, 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 we see in verse 3 and verse 21, and really throughout the whole passage, he models commitment to God's house. That's what this man does for his wife and for his family. He at least models commitment to God's house and he, he goes up and he worships and he sacrifices and he pays his vow and he, and he sacrifices and he goes up with his whole household. He's dedicated to worship. He follows the word of God and he models commitment to God's house, the tabernacle at the time. And eight times in 1 Samuel chapter 1, there is some form of worship mentioned or described. Twice in verse 3, we see worship and sacrifice. Verse 4, sacrifice. Verse 7, went up to the house of the Lord. Verse 19, worship. Verse 21, they went up and sacrificed. Verse 24 and 5, house of the Lord. Verse 28, worshiped. You see it throughout. Men, you are to be the example to the wife of spiritual leadership in the home. It shouldn't be the wife saying, oh, we need to go to church. That, that's our job. We are to be the spiritual leaders in the home. And, and he takes his whole household, it says. No one stays home. Listen carefully. If they are under your roof, they're under your authority. And if they're under your authority, they're going to God's house. There's none of this teenager saying, well, I'm not going to church today. Well, yes, you are. You're, you're under my roof. You're under my authority. You will follow us as a family. Understand the example he has here. There's none of this telling them why they will or will not do something. They're under your roof. They're under your authority. They're going where you go. He sets the example. He also models not only this commitment to God's house, but also he models giving when he's in God's house. 
the sacrifice and the vow and the sacrifice. He models for his family what it is to sacrifice. He models what it is to give back to God. Model that for your wife. Model that for your children. Model that what it is to worship God tangibly. It's an important responsibility of the spiritual leader in the home. There's a sixth lesson in chivalry, and it's start trusting and stop controlling. Some of us guys are really good at controlling. We want to control our wives and control every decision they make and control our kids and control every decision and be in control. And there are times to take our hands off and start trusting instead of controlling. The first area of trust for this man, I believe, is with Hannah's vow. She makes a vow to God and says, God, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. Do you realize that Elkanah could have revoked that vow. He could have annulled it. We see in Scripture, very clearly in Scripture, that the husband had the authority to override the vow of either a daughter or of a wife who made a rash decision, and it wasn't a good decision, and it would hurt them or it would hurt the family. And, and so what we have here is we have Elkanah saying, I agree with your vow, and we will do what you have vowed. See, in Numbers chapter 30, if you want to research it on your own, the law permitted this. A father's job was to protect his daughter from foolish promises. A husband's responsibility was to protect his wife from rash decisions, which really speaks to a couple things here. Daughters, seek the counsel of your wise, godly dad when you're making decisions. Wives, seek the counsel of your wise, godly husband when seeking decisions. Dads, Protect your daughters from foolish decisions. Husbands, protect your wives from unwise decisions. This is the fabric of the family and how God wants us to work together. And it's a beautiful thing. Husbands and wives and children working together. So we have a man here who says, I trust you with this vow. Not only that, he trusts her with the timing of the vow. In verse 23, he, he says, do what seems best to you. She doesn't want to go up to the tabernacle. She wants to stay home, wean her child until she is ready to bring him so that he can stay there. They would wean children usually to the age of three, four, maybe five at most. Usually three or four years of age. And she's saying, I don't want to go up there until I'm really ready to say goodbye to him. And he's prepared. And so you know what Elkanah says? That's fine. He says, do what seems best to you. You can remain home with little Sammy. rest of us are going up there. I am going to trust you and not control you. You know more as a woman about nursing and weaning and taking care of a child than I do. Guys, there are some things our wives know more about than us. Get your hands out of there. Let them make the decisions where they are qualified to do those things and stop controlling and start trusting. So he trusts her with the vow. He trusts her with the timing of the fulfillment of the vow. And both of them then will trust their son over to the Lord. I want you to understand this. They're going to take their son to the tabernacle. He's three or four years of age. And they're going to leave him there. It'd be like the Dean family that was up here dedicating their child. Okay, and they had another couple little kids. I don't know, one of those kids is probably around three or four. They've got 23 kids. I don't know, anyway. 
So, so let's just say after today's service, they left that little boy here to be raised by the staff of this church. Now that's scary. <laughs> that's what it would be like. That's what they did. And then they would only see that child two to three times a year. That would be it. So you take a little three-year-old boy and you give him a goodbye kiss and you say, I've made my promise to God. I'm leaving you at church today. But I'll see you in six months. And then I'll see you in another couple months after that. And that's what they did. And I want you to understand, it was very far from home. He was very young. And they left him with some bad people. Eli was not a good high priest. And his sons were even worse. The Word of God tells us they were worthless. They were immoral. And they were stealing from the people. And they had to trust their child into an environment they did not like. You know, you have to do that with your own kids sometimes. You have to trust them when they go off to college. You have to trust them into that public school. You have to trust them onto that team with those kids that you don't necessarily like. There are times when you just have to do your best as a parent to train up that child and then trust them over to the Lord. And that's what they did. Lessons in chivalry. Let's say them together. Don't compare her to other women. Don't ignore the pressure she faces. Don't tell her to get over it. Please don't do that. Don't jump to conclusions. Model commitment to God's house and start trusting and stop controlling. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this passage that teaches these truths. And Lord, we are sinful men and sinful women, and it is hard to live uprightly and wisely at times. But I pray that you would empower us to be more than what we've been and to do more than what we've done. Help us to be men and women of God. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Men, just talk to the Lord right now. Maybe there are sins of selfishness that you just need to confess. Maybe there are commitments that you need to, to make to grab that wife by the hand and be a better husband. Grab those kids by the hand and be a better father. Just talk to the Lord. Ladies, I'd encourage you just to pray for those men in your life. Pray for those sons. Pray for those husbands. Intercede, as it's not easy for us either. Pray over your home, men and women. Ask God to be the center of your home. Children, pray for your parents, as it's hard to be a mom and dad. You may be here this morning and you just feel like a failure. Ask God for help. Ask God for his grace and mercy. He gives it new every single day. And maybe you're here this morning and you need God's grace for the very first time. You need his forgiveness for your sins. 
And you may say, Scott, that's me. I, I want God in my life. I, I, I need his forgiveness. What do I do? In the quietness of your heart, I would ask you just to call out in faith right now. Just use words like these. Lord Jesus, I desperately need forgiveness. I'm a sinner. And I need you to save me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for loving me that much. Lord, I place my faith in you. I can't save myself. Please save me from all my sin. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you've called out to the Lord this morning, we'd love just to talk to you about that decision. We'd love to encourage you in that decision. And one way you can do that is in your bulletin. If you open up your bulletin, there's a little tear-off.